morning, good morning, man. Thank you so much for being here today. Really, really glad that you're here today. And this morning, we are working through a series that, if you remember, we started of last year uh, in, in Hebrews. And so we, we spent some time in Hebrews and took a little break, and, and now we're back on it again. And so we're, we're walking through Hebrews right now. And man, I'm telling you what, I, I've learned to love the book of Hebrews, Right? I mean, it's, it's a deep book, right? I mean, it's, there's a lot of things here to, to chew on, and, and really, you could work through this for a long, long time, but we've been kind of working through, through Hebrews, and, and so last week, Pastor Tyler did a great job and took on a really big, really difficult subject, and he, he talked about Jesus being our high priest, and that's a great lead-in to where we're going this morning, and so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews Chapter 9, we're going to be kind of working through the first part, the first half of Hebrews 9 today. But as you turn there, I'd like to kind of direct your attention to a scripture that has been in my heart uh, these last couple days. And it's really, I think, gives color to where we're going today in our text. And uh, the scripture is 1 John 2, 2, 1, and it says this. It says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Everyone say advocate. Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, uh, the righteous. So so what that scripture speaks to there is it speaks to that we have an advocate. And and you might know, you might not know, but but if you you do today, uh, the word advocate is is, uh, another word for helper. But it's not not just any helper. It's, It's a legal helper or as you might also look at this as being a lawyer. Now, we have any lawyers here today, because if you are, I'm going to offend you. No, but you're, you know, you're used to it, though, right now. There's lots of good lawyer jokes out there, aren't there? I got a good one. Uh, what's the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? I mean, no, well, a, a, a bad lawyer uh, makes your case drag out for, for months and months and months. And, and a good lawyer makes your case drag out for years. And so <laughs> that's, that's lawyers. But man, there's lots of good lawyer jokes. But, but man, we don't, our, Jesus isn't a lawyer. He's, he's a helper. And he works and, and helps us. And that's really important because life's full of trouble, isn't it? There's, really, there's trouble at every turn, it seems, sometimes. I mean, there's, you, know, you get a good day and you get a bad day. You get a good day and you get a bad day. And that's just this was what life is, is full of. And so, so at, at times, when times are good or times are bad, we have a helper. And, and his name is Jesus. And, and this passage, really Hebrews, really walks through and talks about that. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to read through Hebrews 9. We're going to start at verse 1 today, and it says this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. So what the, what the writer of Hebrews does here is he begins to walk through what that means. And really, he kind of walks through the, 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 the law there, right? He gives some of the points of the law and, and how you worshiped God and such back in the Old Testament times. This is not the first time he's walked through this in Hebrews. It's actually happened quite often, we found. And so he kind of walks through this whole idea, and then he gets to verse 11. And verse 11 is, is massive. Verse 11 says this, says, But when Christ, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, he purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a, it's a mouthful, right? <laughs> it really is. It's a mouthful of stuff. You say, man, what does that mean? What is that talking about? Well, essentially here, what, what, what's happening here, especially in verse 11, verse 11 is really kind of the key of this whole passage. And verse 11 says, Jesus changed everything, right? Now, how many can say that Jesus changed your life, right? Like lots of us can. Yeah, yeah, he's changed a lot of things. He's changed a lot about me too. You know, if you knew me back before I came to Christ and, and, and such, there's, there's really not much about me that's the same as it was before I came to him. And that's a really good thing. You should be thankful that Jesus changed my life. And I, as I am about some of you guys, you know, Jesus has changed your life. He's changed everything. And, and, you know, that's one of those things that we say sometimes. Ah, oh, Jesus changed everything. But we say that, but, but what does it really mean? See, this, this passage here, this text right here, shows us what he did and, 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 and what he changed in, in, in relation to God. And he made a big change. And so this is what this talks about. And, and, and really what happens here is Jesus introduces a new way to walk with God that, that frankly wasn't really all that new. It was a continuation of what the Old Testament laid down. That's the first half of this, this chapter here. It lays down what Jesus changed, that this was before Christ. You had to do, you know, you had to go through priests and you had to, you know, you had blood of goats and calves and all this kind of stuff and you had to do those things and he changed all of that and he changed our access that we have to God. And so, and, and what it says right here is he introduced some really good things into our lives. And so today, we're going to focus on, on, on two of those good things. And then we're going to talk about, man, what this really means for us in, in, in our world. Because, man, what Jesus did really was pretty stinking good. And, and the first thing that Jesus did that was good was is he, he made it so that we now carry the presence of God. If you look at verses 11 and 12 right here, that's, that's what it says. It says that we as believers, we as people... We are now the tent. We are now the room. We're now the place. We carry God's presence with us. Last week, Pastor Tyler talked about the Holy of Holies. It was a, a room, a literal space in, in the temple. And this place was, it was incredible. It was where God's presence was so powerful and, and so strong that if, even if you were the highest of high priests and you were, man, you were without sin, you entered into that place with fear because you could be struck down, as the Old Testament shows us. I mean, this was, a, was, a, was quite a place. There was gold everywhere, and there was you know, heavy curtains separating this from every place else, and you could not interact with God's presence. But Jesus changed all that. So in the same way, the Old Testament temple had the Holy of Holies, and it carried God's presence. Now, believers are that. As believers, we carry with us God's presence. The Holy of Holies is inside me and you. 
Amen, that's right. You, you, you might hear that, you say, man, that, that just doesn't sound, that sounds weird, that sounds off, or I'm not sure how that, that sounds. Well, here, listen to these passages here, because this idea that we carry God's presence with us, that we are the holy of holies, like the Old Testament says, it, man, is, it's littered throughout the New Testament. Places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, do you not know that you're the, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God? Now, when he says temple of God here, he's referring to believers. That's the context that's being laid down here. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He's here. He, He resides inside of us. You see, in the Old Testament... His presence dwelt or his presence like was like in a place, in like a, a, a physical spot. But in the New Testament, his presence dwells in here, in you and, and in me. Man, I, I want you today to, to think of the implications of of what this is saying. Think of what that that means, that that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that we carry his presence wherever we are. You go to the hospital, and you're the the guest of honor, or you're just going there to visit. Either way, you carry God's presence with you. When you go to work, when you deal with people at work, now this could be good or bad news, right? You know, depending on, your, on, your, on what's going on. You carry with you the presence of God at home, in the car, in wherever you are as a believer, you carry with you the presence of God. Think of the implications of this. And see, it works the opposite way as well, of course, when you go someplace you shouldn't go, when you are doing something you shouldn't do, you carry with you the presence of God. You see, this is the deal this morning, is that it is important for us to remember that Christ did something incredible. When he gave his life for us, it didn't just change me, it didn't just change how I do things, it changed everything. And that his presence now goes with us. The second thing that this passage here shows us is that because of Christ, we have been redeemed. Verse 12 here talks about a, a, it says, he secured for us an eternal redemption. Now, redeem is kind of a church word, isn't it? It's a word that we don't use a lot outside of church and outside of, of the way things are. And some thirsty, I'm going to take a drink here. This minute. Hold on. Mm. Dr. Pepper, so good. You know, um, we don't use this word redeemed a whole lot outside of church, but, but this idea of redemption is very much a part of our lives almost every day. In my hand, I hold a can of, of pop. I don't drink a lot of pop and such, but many of you guys do. I've been to your house. And so, you know, I, I've seen, your, seen it before, but, but, but now in Minnesota, this can isn't worth much. What, its value is what's inside of it, and that's it. So once a can is drank, or drunk, or whatever, once a can is gone, uh, the value is out of the can, right? It's gone because it, what's, what's valuable is inside. That's how it works in Minnesota. But here's the deal, is that I haven't always lived in Minnesota. To be honest with you, I've been in Michigan a lot of my adult life. And in Michigan, this works a little differently. Because in Michigan, the state of Michigan has declared that this can is worth something. It's got some value that it doesn't have here in Minnesota. 
Now, I've noticed here in, in Michigan, there's, a, there's an inscription on top of the cans. It says, and it says, am I? Uh, and there's a little dash. It says 10 cents. So what happens is, is that when you drink through a can of pop, you don't crush it. You don't throw it away because, because each can is worth 10 cents. And if you have 10 of those, you have a dollar. If you have 100 of those, you have 10 bucks. And so you can see, and some of you guys are like, man, I'd have like $300 in my garage right now. But, you know, so as a youth pastor, what happens is, you know, youth pastors are looking for ways to raise money. And so we would do can drives. Now, if I was going to do a can drive in Minnesota, I'd be wasting my time. I got better things to do on a Saturday than go around and collect cans because they're worth maybe a half a cent or, or less. But in Michigan, they're, again, worth a lot more. And so we would spend an entire Saturday to raise money for missions. And what we'd do is we would, we would give a, a, a little, put a little flyer on doors in a neighborhood and we'd go around. We went around a lot after Super Bowl Sunday because there was tons of cans. And, and so we'd get bottles and cans like, like crazy. And then you would go and have a little picture here of this place. You'd go to the grocery store. And this is called a redemption center. And I'm not kidding. There's a sign above the doors in these places where it says, this is the bottle and can redemption center. Now what happens is, you take your bottles and cans, and you put them in this little slot, and a little, they, they spin around, and there's this, this little light that reads the barcode to make sure you're not cheating the system. And, and so, uh, and it, it, it reads the code, and then it, depending on how many cans or bottles you have, it spits out a, a little piece of paper that says, your, your thing today is worth this much money. So what would be worthless to do and not worth my time in Minnesota, in Michigan is a whole different situation because the state has said that the cans are worth money. There were times that we would raise hundreds of dollars by doing this. We would drive around in pickup trucks and we would drive through communities and just load can after can after can. And I would spend a whole day with my hand in this stinky, because these places stink, by the way. They're, 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 they're awful. And so we'd, we'd, I, I, would, I would fill someone else's pop cans and bottles and such in this, this slot, but it was worth it. Because the state of Michigan declared value on something that would otherwise be known as valueless. See, this is why redemption is such a good, good thing. Because when, when in this, this passage right here, when, when it says he secured for us an eternal redemption, he was talking about this. Value exchanged for value. Now, when you look at this passage, though, people in this time, the Hebrews, would not have been thinking about pop cans or, or whatever. They would have been thinking about something else. You see, much of the time when you see the word redemption in the New Testament, the connotation and the idea re revolves around slavery. The word, the word redemption, the, this, this idea was a very common thought process in the time in this age because of the, the idea of slavery. Because it was a common practice to have slaves. It was a common practice for people to buy them back or to the, be bought back from the slave market and then returned and set free. And so, so when they saw this kind of an idea, that's what have been in their thought process and in their minds. 
You see, when, when Romans chapter 6 says we are no longer slaves to sin, it's, it is really saying something pretty incredible there. You see, when Jesus has referred to, refers to redemption, that he has bought us back, it is not just some church idea. It is literally that he has assigned value to us, and he's exchanged something of value to buy us back from this idea. You see, here's, here's the, the imagery right here. Because before Christ, we are slaves to sin, and sin devalues. If you want proof of that, look no further than what we're running for with, with 30 for Freedom, you, you, the, the sex trade and trafficking and such. The, this this t- takes what God meant as beautiful and what God meant as valuable and incredible between a husband and wife, and it devalues the thing, it devalues the act, and it devalues the people who are a part of it. It literally ruins lives. Sin ruins lives. Sin left by itself will always do that. It might feel good for a while. It might work for a while. It might make things a difference for a while. But it always does the same thing. It always devalues. And, and this is what sin does. And so because before Christ we are slaves to sin, we are slaves to something that devalues us. I think of a, of a lady, I was talking about this with my mom the other day, there's a, an old actress who was, she was wonderful, and she was at one time quite beautiful, and she was just a very talented, very wonderful actress, whose life end in, ended in ruin because the, the main show she's known for was not known by her name, and she was jealous of the one she co-acted with. And so the reality is, is that at the end of her life, she died as a hermit in a little tiny house in North Carolina. No one cared about her. She had no family. She had no friends. She had nothing. Her money was gone. Everything was gone. And her house was this decrepit, old, beat-up, run-down place. She had made mucho, mucho money in her life, but yet it was gone and devalued and forgotten because she was stuck in her entire life with bitterness and unforgiveness. Sin devalues. So when this passage here talks about Christ bringing redemption to our lives, it literally talks about how he changed everything because he exchanged value for value. But it doesn't mean that he was some loaded rich guy going to the slave market who pulled out his wad of cash and said, I've got millions, so if I throw a few hundred bucks at this person to save them, great. And, you know, if, if a guy did that or a woman did that, that'd be commendable, wouldn't it? It'd be great. Oh, look at this wealthy person who has bought this person out of slavery. It'd be awesome. But that's not what he does, does it? Is it? See, when Christ bought us out of slavery to sin, he didn't just exchange a few bucks or a few bars of gold or whatever else. He literally exchanged, as the word here says, he gave his blood, which was royal blood, which was blood that does not flow through the veins of anybody else. It was given for this purpose. And he assigned value, and he assigned freedom, and he changed everything. So when it says that he redeemed us, he not only bought us out of sin, he assigned value, and he assigned a future, and hopes, and dreams. It all comes from Christ. Jesus has given us value. Man, that's reason to celebrate this morning. Amen? He came, he spilled it out, he gave it all to set us free. And now, now we come to the payoff this morning. 
Because all of those things are, are true, aren't they? All of those things are true. It doesn't matter how you live or how you don't live. It doesn't matter how big or how small, whatever. Those things are just true. Christ came and assigned value to our lives. He redeemed us and he made it possible for us to carry the presence of God with us. So those things are true no matter what. But here's the problem this morning. You see, we can live our lives even as people who believe in God. We can live our lives and we can know those things up here. We can have a a certain understanding or a limited amount of knowledge of those things, but yet never fully get them until we get to the end of this passage. Because it says right here in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what this tells us right here this morning is this shows us that Jesus Christ is our true north. He's our true north. Now you might say, what, what does that mean this morning, Pastor? I don't get that true north idea. See, the, the writer uses the word conscience in this passage, doesn't he? He, says, he, says, he talks about this, the conscience. Our conscience is, is dealt with. And, and every person has a conscience, don't we? And you have a conscience, no matter if you're a believer or you're not a believer or you are the most liberal person or conservative or whatever you think that you are this morning, you have a conscience, right? And see, our conscience tells us what is either morally good or morally bad. We affirm what is morally good and we condemn what is morally bad, right? That's, that's the conscience. That's the job and the purpose of, of the conscience. And it's much like a, a compass, there is a story told, and it's actually found in the Smithsonian Institute. It's a, it's a, it's a story of a man by the name, i got to read it here because it's really hard. It's, it's Waldemar Semenov. And Waldemar Semenov was a, was a World War II-era sailor, but he didn't sail in the war. He sailed a merchant ship during the war. And so one day in 1942, Waldemar had a day in his life he would never forget. A few miles off the coast of North Carolina, Waldemar and his crew were shipping a, a, a load of goods from New York down to some place in, in, in the South America, and they had come across enemy fire. What had happened was the German U-boat, U-123, began to fire at this ship, and because it was a, a merchant ship, it had no defense, no guns, no ammo, nothing on, the, on board. It was a sitting duck. The Germans knew this, and so they, 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 they shot at the ship, and of course, they, they took it down almost instantly. But Waldemar had, a, had a knowledge that nobody else did, because as everyone else on board was freaking out and was going crazy, Waldemar's job was to deal with the compasses in the side ships, in, in the, the lifeboats. And Waldemar knew his job. Waldemar was good at his job. And so Waldemar, the day before this happened, the, the, the Smithsonian shows us that, that Waldemar had spent time recalculating and reworking through these, these compasses. And these four and a half, it, this four and a half inch compasses were set on true north. So when Waldemar and his fellow crew members got into these boats, he said, guys, don't, don't worry. 
Don't worry. I set the things myself. I know what happened. And so as the ships are lowered down into the water, as their boat is sinking, 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 they, they went off in the water, and Voldemort knew how to use a compass, and, and they sent it to True North, and they, 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 they found themselves away to the shipping lanes. And a couple days later, they were found by a shipping ship, and this ship it's a lot of ships in one word. The this, this shipping uh, ship had, had picked them up and had saved their lives. And, the, and, and, and the, 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 the people on board said, Voldemort, man, the reason why we made it wasn't because we had food or because we had rations or because we had whatever else. It was because Voldemort did his job and he knew how to do it and he did it right. This four and a half inch compass literally saved their lives. See, here's the deal, though, this morning. Compasses can be wrong, can't they? Compasses can be wrong sometimes. There are plenty of people who see what is morally good as morally reprehensible. There are plenty who see what's morally reprehensible as morally good. Plenty condemn what the Scripture calls good and bad as bad, and they commend what the Scriptures call bad as being good. And they all do this, just like anyone does, based on their conscience. See, if you want to know why our country is going through what it is nowadays, this is the reason. This is the hope of the world. The hope doesn't lie in a political person. It doesn't lie in getting some laws passed. The hope of our country lies in this idea. Because the reason why our country is fighting over good, bad, right and wrong, left, right, moral, whatever else, is because our compasses need to be readjusted. You see, compasses can be wrong at, at times. First Timothy chapter 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are, say, are seared. So essentially, Paul says to Timothy, your moral compass needs constant recalibration or lost will be true north. See, where true north is off, the bearer of the compass will lose his way without ever even knowing it happens. And lots of things in our world needs recalibration. Let's be honest. There's many things. I can think of, you know, if your, your speedometer is, is off, you know, you can set your, your, your speedometer at 70 miles an hour. And if you're going 90, uh, you're, the cop could pull you over and you say, but sir, I'm telling you, I thought I was going 70. And he'd say, great, get your speedometer recalibrated. Here's a ticket to help you remember, you know. And so he won't care what happens. But today you could have set your, your you could have, before coming to church today, put a roast in the oven. I love a roast on, on Sunday afternoon. The smells, the, you know, all just oh, the carrots and potatoes and all, oh, it's so good. And you're hungry, getting hungry now. You could have put one in today and set the oven at 350. And then you get home and you expect to smell this wonderful smell of roast. But instead what you get home with is you're greeted by the fire department. Because the laws of thermodynamics don't care if you thought you set your oven at 350 if what happened really is you set your oven at 550. Because what would happen, of course, is your oven would go from being helpful to burning your house down because it needs to be recalibrated. Plenty of things in life need to be recalibrated. See, Christ came to, as it says here, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's a hypothetical this morning. Your, your kids are going crazy, 
You know, not, not, not in your house, but in my house it happens, and so you're better. But you know, your kids are going crazy. They're, they're loud. They're, they're going nuts. And you get home from work. You get home from wherever you are to that day. They're just going crazy. The, it's a full moon, and, you know, everything's going, going nuts. You get home, and, and what you do is you deal with your kids, and maybe the way you've seen the past, and you lose it on your kids, and you start cussing at them and yelling at them and calling them names, and you beat them, and you do all this kind of stuff. But, but it seems to work. Because you have peace in your house. So you get that night and you, you, you get your Cheerio, your bowl of Cheerios out and you watch your evening news and the house is quiet and you think, I am living in peace because I've made my decisions and, and I'm been, I've done a good job as a good father because my kids are quiet. But the problem is, is you don't realize that your kids despise you. You have not taken into account what the scripture says to to provoke not your children to wrath. You know that, but you think it works, so knock it off, pastor. And so uh, my life is pretty good. And you don't care that your kids, when they get older and and their consciences begin, that they hear your voice when they do something wrong and you all this kind of stuff. No. You need a recalibration in your conscience, in your spirit this, this morning. You see, this is why it's so valuable and so important. It, it matters because I don't want to invest my life in dead works. This passage here talks about that. And I want you to think today, what, what kind of a life will dead works give you? I, I want you to picture a fence today. Think about a fence as we consider what kind of life, a, a, a dead works kind of life will, will give you. Picture, picture a pasture with the fence. It's, it's large. It's, there's fencing all over the place. And, of course, there's places for the animals to move and to, to, to grow and to go and such. And so there's all these, these elaborate spots, elaborate fencing network that you have in this, this pasture. Now, now, picture that for a moment because that's what, that's what this passage, that's what Hebrews chapter 9, the first t- 10 verses, that's what it talks about. That in the Old Testament, God built a fence. And fences can be good. Fences can be wonderful. They can help. They can be, they can be valuable at times in our lives because they're safe. They can direct you in a good direction. You see, this first part describes a fence that God built for mankind to follow him in. But here's the rub with that idea is that when there is a fence, you don't need to learn how to follow. You just need more fencing, Right? See, there's, there's, there's life beyond the fences. But you don't get to that spot unless you have a compass. See, that's why living a spirit-led life is so valuable and so important. And why so many of us say, I don't want the compass. Just give me more rules. Give me more fences. Tell me what I need to do and not do. I don't care about following God. I just want to hear what I'm supposed to do. But see, here's the problem as we learn from the people of, of the, the Jewish people that when we live like this, as the Israelites showed us, if we don't have the Spirit, we'll just tear down the fences and move them wherever we want them to be. We'll call it good. We'll be outside of God's blessing and we'll be in Investing our lives in dead works. I better say that again. You see, the Israelites showed us that if we don't have the Spirit, we'll just tear down the fences and we'll move them to where we want them to be. We'll call it good and be outside of God's life, God's blessing, and we'll be investing our lives in dead works. This passage here gives us very clear 
direction and how not to live like that. See, we need a recalibration in our lives, don't we? It reminds me of a time recently when I got my life recalibrated. So I was in Africa, and I had a massive recalibration in my life in Africa. I needed it. You see, I, I went to Africa with the express reason that I was going to teach and we were going to preach. And so I had all kinds of messages prepared, and I had lessons prepared. We are going to teach pastors, and, and we did those things. We are going to do all kinds of great things, and we, we did those, and it was wonderful, and it was great. And, and towards the end of my time in Africa... On Sunday, I was preaching at a church, and it was, it was a wonderful place. It was awesome. There was, you know, people were passionate about, it was just, there was, it was you know the story. It was, it was amazing. There was God moving, and it was just loud, and it was just exciting. It was just awesome. And so I preached this message, and man, it went great. And I was excited. I'm preaching. I'm going crazy. People are shouting, waving hankies. And I was like, this is my people. You know, so I was excited about this. And it was awesome. And then I did the altar call. And hundreds came forward. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so I'm praying for people at the front. And people are getting blessed. And there's all this cool stuff happening. And, and, and my, my interpreter said, Steve, you have to pray for each person here. And there had to be 200 people there. And I said, Okay, so I'm praying for them, and halfway through this time, God stopped me, God broke me, and he spoke in that moment. He said, Steve, these people aren't here because of your talents, because of what you did. And he brought me to the scripture, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. He said, Steve, you need to learn that lesson from these people. You have come to bless them, and you have. But you've blessed them not because of your ability or talents. You've blessed them because they are hungry for me. See, I went there not knowing I needed a recalibration. That's the thing about recalibrations is we don't know when we need them, right? We don't fully get that, you know. You, your oven can be off. You don't know. Your speedometer can be off. You don't know that. You, you don't know what's going on. You see, recalibrations come when we don't know them. And we want God to put more fences. God, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to know, and I'll be good. No, that's not spirit-led living. And as we learn from the, from the Hebrew people that we can move, those fences can be moved. What cannot be moved is when we learn how to follow Jesus, we need a better compass. And that is a spirit-led life. And it comes when we come to the place, as James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you would stand across this room this morning, let's, let's, let's be in an attitude this morning where God can really speak because this is the good news about all these things is that you don't have to have a list of 35 things to do in order to earn these things. You just have to come with a heart that says, God, I need you. Amen? Lord, we need you this morning. This is why communion is such a wonderful thing because Jesus time and time again called on us to remember what he did through the body and through the blood, broken, given for us because he knew that we would not know what to do and he knew that we needed these kinds of moments to stop and to pause and to think, remember, and ask him to come and minister. If you are today in need of this in your life, you would say, Pastor Steve, I need a recalibration. This is where you begin. This is 
where you start. This is where you go. You come to him, broken, given. You come to him whose blood was poured out for you, that gave you value, that gave you hope, that gave you a reason, and gave you a future, and said, Jesus, I need you to recalibrate my life once again. This morning he spoke in Matthew chapter 26. He said in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Take that bread in your hand this morning. Jesus, we are thankful, Lord, that your body was broken and given for us, that we could know what it was like to live. Lord, we don't forget this. Lord, we pray that you would continue to remind us, Lord, what you've done. And that, Lord, our hope lies in nothing less than you, Jesus, our righteousness. I pray this in your name. Take and eat all of it this morning. Mm. In the same way with the cup, and when he had given thanks for it, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, the promise, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. Would you raise the cup in your hand this morning? If you're thankful for that thing that he did, that is 2,000 years ago, has every bit as much meaning and influence and truth in our world nowadays, give him a little shout of praise this morning. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, we raise these cups this morning not as beaten down, not as bruised, not as people that don't understand. We raise these cups this morning, Lord, as a sign of surrender, a sign of victory, that your blood was poured out, that gave us value. Your blood was poured out to wash us clean. You took away our sin. As Psalm says, you have forgotten our sin, has cast it as far as the east is from the west. Remembered it no more. Lord, it's because of you, Lord Jesus. We have this truth, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us. Lord, give us the power to walk in that forgiveness. We pray this in your name, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.